going on? Welcome back to the show. How you doing? Jordan, my man. Glad to be here again, dude. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited for today's chat. I feel like there's uh, just a lot. There's going to be a big minimalist powwow here. Um, definitely something that we've both been like shooting the shit about on WhatsApp back and forth for a bit. Um, I mean, you want to do just a quick, quick update on who you are. I mean, just <laughs> for those of you who haven't listened to the other fucking 10 episodes you've been on, but I'll put those in the description. I'll put some of those, but for anybody who's uh, this is their, their first Brian experience. Yeah. Um, you poor souls. I really wish that, that you know me better. Um, I'm Brian. I own a couple different fitness companies. Uh, we do some group programming and stuff kind of similar to what Jordan does, but, um, I've been around doing this thing for 25 years, uh, professionally for you're old, we get over it. 11 maybe. And, uh, got like a few years of CrossFit in between, uh, a bunch of bouts of bodybuilding and physique focused pursuit. So, um, cool. that's me. I'm here. Cool. Sounds good. And I'm sure most people are nodding along. They know you quite well and what you do. Um, so we're good today. We're going to talk about minimalist training. This actually is a topic that I'll be speaking about at the real coaches summit in March. And I'm like, I've, I went back and forth on a few topics. Um, basically around the guy who's, who's hosting. It was like, you know what, we just, uh, you know, I want you to talk about hypertrophy, but you can pick something that you're passionate about. And so I made a short list of stuff I wanted to talk about. And, and, you know, it, it ranged from like nerdy biomechanics stuff to like advanced programming. And it, and it came, it just came down to it. Like the one thing that I feel most passionate about is this topic today. And I just know that it is something that you share a passion for. And so, you know, we'll go back and forth, but I'll throw it over to you first. Let's talk about like, what is, uh, the philosophy behind like minimalism in general, but, and, and how it applies to training and more so like, why should we care about this topic? Yeah. So I think the first step in talking about minimalist training is probably to differentiate between what would be training for like maintenance, where you're just not making progress and you're just kind of like, Hey, I'm happy where I'm at. And and I'm just going to train enough to maintain that versus the amount that we can refer to as MEV or minimum effective volume, which would be like the least you can do while you still see forward progress in your strength and your physique and building a muscle and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Now you're up, dude. What you got? Uh, well, I totally agree. I think that there's a distinction between enough to maintain and and there's a bit of subjectivity in, in what we say when we talk about minimalist training, because what we're really looking for is like this balance of bang for my buck, this return on our like time investment. And so like we're going to talk about minimalism today in a couple different ways. And I think in an absolute sense, minimalism would be what's the least amount that I can do and still make appreciable gains. And the word appreciable or tangible, noticeable, uh, something that is tangible, visible feel, you know, you can feel it enough that it is motivating to keep going. And so that's obviously a bit subjective is like, what is tangible? What is, you know, some notable, what is, you know, some sort of like recognizable gains that might be subjective, but I think we can all kind of understand. It's like, uh, enough that, you know, you're progressing that you can see in your training, but that's in an absolute sense. And I don't know about you, but I think that that, while that that is intriguing to me and there will be parts of my life where I flex that super hard and I'm like, how little, you know, there are going to be parts of my life where it's like, how little can I do and just maintain? There are going to be parts of my life, like I think both of us are in a similar spot right now where we're leaning in that direction of like, how little can I do and still make appreciable gains? Um, but I think that there's also just, and you can you could tell me if you're on the same page, I think there's just also a lot to learn from this 
from how to make more out of your time that can be applied in a, in a variety of different amounts. And so when we're looking on a spectrum of like minimalism to maximalism, where like maximalism is like a bodybuilder who doesn't care about getting poor ROI because to them, they are more concerned with the absolute result versus a minimalist who's more concerned with the time investment, the ratio, their ROI. I think everybody's going to fall on some end of that spectrum, somewhere along that spectrum of like how much they value, how much time they have and how much they value the absolute result versus how much they value the ratio of time to the results that they get. And maybe not everybody listening to this is a full-blown minimalist. Like I actually don't think I'm a full-blown minimalist. I don't program full-blown minimalism. I know you guys just came out with Physique 45, which is like really flexing some of these things that we'll talk about today. Um, but I think there's just so much to learn from that to find your most sustainable place along that spectrum where training allows you to move forward and you can meet some of those goals, but you're also, you know, um, kind of fitting it into a time allocation that is somewhat, there's a constraint for most people listening to this, a time constraint. And so depending on what that is and what your appetite for like the pursuit of the most optimal gains is, we can learn from some of these programming techniques and how to make more out of less time to figure out what's, what's your happiest place along that spectrum. You, you in agreement there? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I definitely want to get into some of the programming uh, tricks or whatever that we'll use. I think a few kind of things that maybe are important to, to say right off the bat are first off that that gap between training for maximum gains and training for minimum gains, you're still training for gains. That gap shrinks as your training age increases. So someone like me that's been training 25 years, there may not actually be a difference at all, or it's very small between what I would have to do to achieve maximum gains and what I would have to do to just achieve any gains at all. Um, so in my mind, the way I'm training now, yes, it seems minimal, but it is probably the most I can do and still progress at this point. So it's a very interesting kind of assessment of that situation based on where you are in your journey. Um, the second point that I think also is along the same lines of individuality is that whatever number it is that we're going to throw out there or these numbers we're going to use of, you know, this amount of sets is, is good if it's done this way, et cetera, et cetera. That number is going to be different for everybody. Like there might be some people that can, progress on a minimum effective volume of four sets for a muscle group in a week. And there might be somebody that needs 10 sets in a week to progress minimally or 15. I mean, it, there's so many factors that go into that. And I know we're going to get into this, but um, in the programming considerations, we have like the accuracy of your execution, the exercise selection, what exercises you're choosing, how close to failure you're taking these exercises um, along with a number of other things, like whether you're using intensity techniques like myo reps and rest pause sets and, and all this stuff. So um, I'll kick it back to you and see where you want to take it from there. No, I, I agree with that. And I'll circle back to the first point. I was laughing. I was, I was uh, with Jenna, my fiance in the kitchen yesterday. And I looked at her. I was, I was, we were just kind of sh uh, like spitballing about this. And I was thinking like at this point, again, uh, uh, for, for certain people, maybe or slightly more advanced who have more muscle, maybe closer to their genetic potential, um, have been doing this for longer is a decent proxy for that. Um, have more muscle are stronger, whatever. Like I'm thinking, I was thinking to her, I was like, you know what, if I do this sort of minimalist training, which again, minimalist doesn't, is not maintenance. We're talking about still making gains. Maybe I, you know, for, for argument's sake, what if I gained like a pound of muscle per year doing minimalist and, and being more of a maximalist, what if I gained like two pounds per year? Um, and I have no, I'm not, let's not put hard numbers on that. I don't know those things to be true. They depend on so many different variables, but I'm, I, I connected with what you just said that, that, 
the difference, you might say that's a 100% difference. That's a double, but the time allocation would is not worth for me at this stage, that extra pound. And there's an interesting concept that I really spurred me getting on the podcast today is this idea of whether or not we just end up in the same spot anyway. And uh, that to me is a fascinating thing that I really want you to like red team with me and like, just like kind of break that down because that's something I'm like, it's like, um, it's like a mind puzzle in my head trying to figure out if that is actually true and how I feel about it. So let's get to that in a second. But I certainly said that I was like, you know what? I'd rather train 66% of the minutes, uh, and get, you know, 75% of the benefit, or even like, you know, in this case, the one pound of muscle growth, I, that to me is I'd be happier with that. ROI than going full-blown maximalist, spending two hours in the gym or whatever that number would end up being for that extra pound. Now you could say it's double the gains, but in a, that might, that's more of like a relative answer, but in a practical absolute sense, like that to me is a, is a bad trade for me in terms of like ROI on my own times, specifically for like people who are more advanced. Yeah. I mean, I think eventually you reach a point in that training journey anyways, where like there isn't a two pounds and one pound. It's like, 1.2 or one. Right. And, and so at that point of your journey, then that ROI shrinks even more and, and you can't even know, like you can't really know if, Hey, maybe if I did four more sets for each muscle group, maybe I get 1.3 pounds instead of one pound this year or something like that. But it's just, it's so ambiguous that there's no way we could even begin to do that. So at some point in the journey, you just look at it as, Hey, if I'm making progress, however you define progress. And, and it probably isn't by physique because if you're gaining a pound in a year, like you can't see that. Um, so you're using like proxies of, you know, my strength is increasing with the same volume, with the same exercise order, whatever sort of, uh, rationale you want to use there. Like, as long as you're seeing some sort of progress, you're, you're going to look at that and be like, okay, I'm within the realm of, you know, doing the right thing. Um, one probably caveat there, that's probably pretty important to discuss is that, Using strength as your proxy for progress is a slippery slope because you can actually get stronger with significantly less volume than you need to grow. Like, especially in the short term. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the study by Dr. Pack, I think it was like a number of months of them training with just a one rep max or just a one rep max, and then two, three rep back offsets. And both groups made progress, like literally one rep a week of back squat. That's it. That's all you do one rep a week. And you made progress, not as fast as the person that did one rep plus two back offsets, but, but you made progress. So I mean, you, that's just a reason for why that's a slippery slope, I think. Yeah. I, I still would say that it's uh, it's funny because when people talk about things like soreness or in this case, strength progression, like they aren't pieces of data that independently are important. They're pieces of data, like part of a puzzle that can point you in a direction of like, okay, this is probably doing X, Y, Z. Like I still think strength, I feel, still think the sentence strength is our best proxy for muscle growth is true in context if other things are true if you're doing roughly moderate forms of uh, amount of volume you know if you're doing in you know, a moderate forms of or a moderate amount of reps and and load like if you're like getting stronger within a hypertrophy program that like generally ticks most of these general boxes then I think you can start to use strength. It's the same with like soreness, like soreness. If someone's like, Hey, I'm really sore. Did I grow? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe you just went out for a 20 mile run and you're sore as shit. Probably didn't get any hypertrophy. But like, if you're telling me you're sore, in a hypertrophy program, doing things well with good execution, like 
everything else is in check. I'm like, okay, that data now means something different to me and might actually be something that we can use. And so I'm with you. If you, if you take the, I got stronger, thus I grew that, that can't be taken by itself as an independent thing it, it, within the context of like getting things mostly right for hypertrophy. I think it's still usable. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. And like I, you have the fitness fatigue spectrum piece of that too, with like, if you're doing less then you just have more recoverability and you can apply that to getting stronger. So uh, it's just, it's very gray. Yep. When I think about like the, why you should care question, I think of like the people listening to this podcast are either uh, coaches or people, right? Obviously just like non-coaches, um, everyone's people, um, unless you're gerbil is listening to this, but I feel like when I'm thinking about this, like this idea of minimalism or like how to make more out of less time, like it's unlikely that people listening to this podcast are either dealing with people or are people that feel, you know, if you, you, you know, when you do those tests where you're like, um, they read out a sentence and it's like, it's like agree, strongly agree, disagree, strongly disagree. And it's like, if I said, I want to make the absolute best gains, no matter what the cost. And you had those four questions. It's unlikely people listening to this podcast are like strongly agree. It's unlikely the case. It's more likely the case you or your clients sound something like, I want to get stronger and build muscle, but I also work full-time and have kids, or I want to work stronger and build muscle, but I only have X time in the gym per week. I want to get stronger and build muscle, but I really don't love working out that long. And so that's like way more like it inherently everyone is understanding that there's two sides to the scale. There's like uh, this idea of like, what is optimal, obviously the plugging the podcast name here, but it's like, we, we want to learn what's optimal and we want to balance it with what's practical. And in the same vein, we want to learn like what would be good enough so we can learn from that and decide what's practical for ourselves. And I just think that like a lot of people are like, oh, I heard this is more optimal. It's like, yeah, you know, but would it be more optimal for you if I told you it costs you another 30 minutes in the gym? And so, you know, people are like, oh, okay, then maybe that's not sustainable. Um, and so, you know, I want to talk about like, um, you know, today's discussion, we're going to look at like how much volume do you need or how little can you do and how to make the most of your limited time? Not, not necessarily because it's everyone's main goal to be a minimalist in the true sense, but because the lessons we learn from those lines of thinking, we can apply to our clients and, and helping them make the most of their time, uh, which is likely limited to some degree. So let's let's talk a little bit. Let's set the scene a little bit of like how much like so in, in, invariably you've gotten the question of like how much volume do you need? Like, where do we even begin to answer that question? And, and what are some of the uh, we'll go back and forth. But where do you even begin to answer that question? Yeah, I think the first thing to state, and this is how I opened the blog post on Physique 45, is, hey, did you guys know that the very first set you do provides you the majority of the gains that you get? So like the majority, it's, it's I would say based on the research from my reading of it, it seems maybe you get about 60% of the gains from doing one hard set that you would from doing three, four, five, up to six, it seems. There's a diminishing return with every extra inch of stimulus you're getting. Yeah. So I think if you were to just throw very vague, not official numbers out there, I would say 60% of the gains from one set. And then you get up to three sets and you're probably at 94, 95, 96% of the gains. And then getting from 95% to hundred percent is like those sets five, six, and seven or four, five, six, or, or whatever it is. So you're getting 60% of the gains from one set, but it takes you three times as long to do three sets. And yes, you're getting 30% potentially more gains from that. Uh, obviously, there are extenuating circumstances, different factors, how close to failure you are, all that stuff. Um, but I think one set is a really good starting point to say like, hey, if I'm short on time, if I really care about getting results and I'm willing to, to work really hard on one set, then that can get the ball rolling. Um, there is a meta-analysis in 2017 by... 
Schoenfeld and colleagues. And essentially, I'm going to cherry pick two quotes from this meta-analysis, but uh, one says, clearly substantial hypertrophic gains can be made using low volume protocols, less than or equal to four weekly sets per muscle group. Such an approach therefore represents a viable muscle building option. Second quote, when considering weekly sets as a binary predictor of less than nine sets or more than nine sets, findings did not reach statistical significance between conditions. So now we have this kind of framework of like, can I hey, pause you for one second? Can I yeah, pause you? Yeah, yeah, please, this is the same study. This is the same study for everyone listening that from which we have developed this uh, regurgitation of 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week. So you, what Brian's saying, we can go over the two quotes again if we want to, but this is the same study from which every single fitness influencer that you ever ask this question to is referencing when they say 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week. This same study says that, you know, below four sets, you can, is a viable strategy for muscle growth. And that between under nine sets and over nine sets, the differences did not reach statistical significance. So it's, it's, it's just, I, I love those quotes and I've seen them before and that they just, it's interesting um, how we, those two things are coming from the same study. Sorry, continue. Yeah, I mean, I definitely had to go deeper into the study and not just read the like conclusion piece, you know, um, which, you know, very few people actually do. Um, so, so yeah, the, yeah, it just, the, the, the fourth, the four to nine sets is kind of this framework now based on this, like somewhere between four and nine sets for your average person working average amounts of distance from failure with just average exercise selection, you can, four to nine sets can get you mostly what, what you're going to get from 10 to 20 sets. Um, then you start adding in things that we're going to discuss such as execution, accuracy, exercise selection, choosing more length and movements, using rest pause sets and myo reps and stuff like that. And suddenly, uh, we're able to get a lot more out of fewer sets and less time. Yeah. The, so when, when I had first looked at this research, when it came out and was probably not in a place intellectually where I was going to dive in and start to have my own critiques and, you know, observe limitations and stuff like that. Um, it struck me as like, it, like I, I probably didn't have the knowledge I have now, but there was, it struck me that that is such a ridiculously hard thing to say that 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week is probably what's optimal. And I understand the, the need for, heuristics and, and, and generalizations and a, a starting place. But just, can we think about this 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week? Like, you know, how many like variables in there are going to, ch- I mean, you touched on a, t- a couple of them, but think about how hard this is. Like questions that come to mind for me is, is a leg extension count the same as a back squat? Are they both counting this one-to-one ratio for quads? One is a single joint movement, high stability, short position overload, leg extension. Uh, we know that, you know, whatever, we know that more length of positions give more hypertrophy. So is a short position exercise and a length of position exercise, are they counting the same? Uh, you know, is a set at three RIR the same as a set at zero RIR? Is that, are those both counting towards my 10 to 20 sets equally? Um, you know, does um, div- certain divisions of a muscle, like how broad are we going with this? Does the iliac lat need 10 to 20 sets of isolated work? You know, um, you know, uh, what are some other ones? Like, what about things that are indirectly trained? So like, uh, does a bench press count one for one thing for front delt, one set for chest and one set for tricep? And does a set of pull-ups count one set for forearms and one set for biceps and one set for rear delt and one set for lats and one set for upper back? Does it count for all of those things being trained directly or indirectly? And so if you look at that research, 10 to 20 sets is usually like met with this 
maybe I'm incorrect, but maybe, maybe this isn't what people think, but I always thought, wow, that's a lot of sets. I was like, wow, that's a lot of sets. Um, and I think a lot of people will, will get that knee jerk of like, Ooh, that's a lot of sets. But what you don't realize is that study counted all indirect work as a one-to-one ratio. So a set of pull-ups counted for all of your back muscles and your biceps. And so if someone's like, Hey, you got to do 15, 10 to 20 sets of biceps, you might be like, holy shit, 10 to 20 sets of biceps. But if you're doing 12, you know, nine sets of back and three sets of biceps, that's 12 sets of biceps as per this literature. And so when you start to realize that they took, and I'm not suggesting that that's how we quantify it. I'm just saying, if you're going to use that number, you better understand that they counted indirect work as a one-to-one. What about how you execute a movement? Just telling me that a squat counts for X, Y, Z doesn't tell me how you squatted. Was it a more knee dominant squat, a hip dominant squat, adductors, you know, more forward torsaline, whatever. So when you say 10 to 20, when somebody says 10 to 20, I feel like there's uh, it feels like a really insurmountable number. It's like, oh my God, people, I got to really, it's almost like that, that's a vote for higher volumes, but like it, it isn't actually, if you, I'm not saying it isn't, it might, it's all relative, but like I found that to be very striking as something that's not discussed. 10 to 20 sets per muscle group. If you're talking about back, let's say as a muscle group and like chest as a muscle group, which each have, I mean, back as a bajillion muscles, but the pecs at least have three divisions, right? And so, um, I found that to be quite interesting. It's like people are like, well, you know, somebody in my group will be like, hey, we're only doing three sets of direct bicep work. I've read you need 10 to 20. And it's like, you're getting 12, you know, as per that reference point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess if you're doing 10 to 20 sets of back and they're pulling movements, like I guess if you're not doing like a straight arm pull down and like a rear delt fly, then they're right. kind of all counting for biceps. So yeah. at that point, you actually don't really need direct arm work. Um, do you know whether when they say 10 to 20 sets for legs, is that 10 to 20 for quads and 10 to 20 for hamstrings? Or are we talking about the legs as a total? I, no, I think they're saying each individual muscle, but they counted a lot of things like for with a ton of overlap. Um, yeah. And so like every squat, every split squat, every lunge, every leg press was like glutes, adductor, quad, you know? Um, and so there you was know, a ton I think of, they overlap. may actually count it as hamstring. I, I think, I yeah, feel I think like they count they as count hamstring. No, I think that, you know, you're hundred percent right. I think yeah, they yeah. count as hamstrings too. Totally. I think you're right. Actually. Yep. I think you are right. Which was an yeah. odd, which was, and I'm not suggesting that we count it that way. I'm just saying, if you're going to use that metric and we're going to use that to start to put things yeah. into an optimal bucket, um, that, that you acknowledge that, like, you're probably doing what you thought that, you know, this list is and, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. And I think that the, like the exercise specific is actually one of the biggest missed components of like a leg extension to failure, uh, or, or like a leg extension at three RIR, it counts the same as like my back squat to one RIR. It's just like, a, it's a one back squat at one RIR is like five sets or 10, you know, I don't know, something crazy. If you were trying to equate it for leg extensions. Yeah, no, for sure. That, that, the ambiguous piece between comparing like an isolation movement to a compound in that like the leg extension of the squats, a perfect example. You just, you just can't compare it. Um, so I think when we're looking at programming the, the minimalist approach, you're going to veer most of your programming to the more lengthened dominant movements. Yeah. And you're still going to have a leg extension and a leg curl in there because you need to train regional hypertrophy, different thing, rectiformis, all that good stuff that we've discussed on many a podcast, but the predominance of your work and your effort is going to go into those big compound movements. And then I think what we'll probably do or see if someone's programming this, like I'm, I've done with physique 45 is on those isolation movements that are less fatiguing. We try to get much more bang for our buck there. And so one, uh, I think cool example to, to point this out is that if you did three sets of 12 to 15 on the leg extension, 
and just assume they're all to failure for sake of argument, then you would be getting 15 effective reps using that model. So essentially an effective reps model says that the five reps before failure give you uh, the most stimulus. Uh, so we count those as the effective reps, not that reps six, seven, and eight from failure give you nothing. It just makes sense and allows us to kind of communicate information a little bit better to you guys. So we assume the three sets of 12 to 15 leg extension gives you 15 effective reps. Um, what we will do in the programming is essentially take one set of leg extensions for 10 reps. Um, and that gives you five effective reps. And then we'll throw three myo rep or rest pause sets in. And so say you go five, four, three on your rest pause set. So you have the five effective reps from the 10 rep set, and then you have five plus four plus three. That now gives you 17 effective reps, which is more effective reps than you would have got by doing three sets of 12 to 15 straight sets for leg extension. So um, being able to use techniques like that in these kind of less fatiguing isolation movements, it um, allows them to be a productive component or piece of a minimalist training program. Everybody who's in my group who listens to what you just said knows that that knows exactly what you just said because we have done that exact protocol for a leg extension before, which is like just with uh, like a one plus three myo reps. Um, there's been just been super fun. I definitely want to go into a lot of those variables. I think that's like again, there's a lot we can learn from that. Um, on that on that Schoenfeld study, like I think. I think if you just like open up with a room of fitness enthusiasts and you ask them if they can get like, uh, you know, if, if they could get like 85% of the gains with like five sets per week, like, would they, or, you know, the difference between the, so uh, whatever, not to, not to beat around the bush. Like that study showed that like, if you were looking for the optimal gains, it's somewhere in that 10 to 20, which by the way, super wide range. And again, has all those caveats we just went over of like, does this, you know, these had overlapping, uh, you know, indirect muscles were trained. And is that a length of position? Is that close to failure? What is the, you know, what exercise are you doing? How are you executing? All of that stuff was not discussed. And I understand we have to start very general, but the people who did five to nine sets per muscle group per week got 84% of the optimal gains. And the people who did one to four sets got 64% of the optimal gains. All of them grew. And so 64%, you might be like, wow, it's almost half the gains. It's not as good. Dude, it's one to four set per muscle group per week. And I think the t- some big take homes for this are like, Dude, the difference I used to, I, I have a, I have an Instagram po- quote I put up like every couple of months or like every like six months. And it's like the difference between an okay workout and an amazing workout is nothing. And the the difference between like an okay workout and no workout is everything. And in this context, man, if you went in and like worked up to a top set and went hard on that set and did one set, like we're talking about like more than half the gains, like you just said, like a roughly 60% of the gains in that first set. Like there's just such a nice, good like good feeling out there of like inclusion for people who are like, I don't have an hour four times a week. I might have 30 minutes, four times a week. It's like amazing. You can make amazing gains like that. Again, if you're, you know, from a programming perspective, organizing it correctly, one of those ways is to make sure you're going all the way, if not you know, extremely close to failure, depending on the movement. But I found that to be, I mean, I know that it was untrained subjects and I know that they trained to failure. And so those are two caveats, like, you know, but it's still like, I feel like the bar for making gains uh, just not continues to go down. Like it's plummeting down to zero, but I feel like it's just very encouraging for people who are like, think they can't do a whole lot. It's like, yeah, you, you could still make gains if you, if you, you know, make up for it in certain ways. Yeah, no, for sure. No argument for me on any of that. Um, one of the things you brought up earlier that maybe we touch on is this whole, do you end up at the same place at the end regardless? Cause I find that really intriguing too. And, uh, something that, uh, Dave McConey and I have discussed on uh, brains and gains, his podcast, but, um, 
essentially like maybe you want to frame, do you want to frame this up? I have an idea of how I'd frame it, but it's your podcast. No, you, you frame it. Go ahead. I'll, okay. I'll, poke, it. I'll right. poke around. All right, cool. So, um, so we have two people, right? One person essentially takes this minimalistic approach and they train hard and they do all the things that we're talking about. And they both train for 15 years. At the end of the 15 years, the hypothesis on my end would be that they probably end up at the exact same place. Um, I actually didn't talk about what the first person is doing. So first person is, is doing 10 to 20 sets, following all of the like typical general evidence-based research. And then the other person is doing this minimalist approach. So from what I think the research tells us on this dose response with volume is that it could potentially get you to your genetic limit or to whatever gains you're going to get faster than somebody that takes the minimalistic approach. But at the end of the day, as long as you're the tortoise and you keep just inching forward, you'll eventually get to that finish line too. And uh, maybe you'll do it with less injuries, uh, a, a better life where you have friends and a better relationship with food and all of the other things that go into that whole equation. No, that that's exactly the the framing that that we're looking at. Is is this going to get me to the place faster? And how much faster in the scheme of something that we're going to be doing for the the length of our lives? You know, if I had been, you know, uh, more like more jacked within the first five years, but then plateaued off, or like more of a linear approach where like you know that gains happened more over time, like after like 10, 15, 20 years of training, which should be your goal overall. Like we're, you're probably going to, I mean, honestly, I think if somebody's going to try and counter your argument, they can't counter it strongly. Like there's there, those people aren't going to like at worst, they're not looking massively different. And I think that there's also an element of like, um, you will only get as jacked as your one genetics, obviously, but also your willingness to to do certain things. And I think that I'm at a place, maybe you, you know, you're, you're super jacked. You've been doing this a long time. And I think there's, if I had put like, a, if I put you to the sword and I'm like, Brian, what are the things you'd have to do now to get even more jacked? I think we all end up in a place where, you know, like it's the same as getting lean. Like when is the diet over? The diet's over when you don't want to do what you have to do or would have to do to get leaner. Like where you're like just in a place where you're like, okay, I'm, I've achieved X goal. And if I want more, I have to do Y. I look at why I don't want to do why that's when I'm done. And I think if you're honest, I don't know, I'm going to be curious your answer. If I'm like, Hey, Brian, like you uh, need to be as, as jacked as humanly possible in over the next three years, like there would be probably things you would change. But if you don't have a life or death situation, I think we all run into a, an amount of work that has a limit and an amount of mm -hmm. maybe it's like a, uh, like I'm at a point emotionally where I don't want to gain weight. I don't want to go through gaining in cycles emotionally. I don't have it in me to do anymore. So I'm at a position where the thing that I'd have to do to keep growing, whether it's training, nutrition, sleep, whatever lifestyle trade-offs like uh, that is like, has run into this like immovable object meets an unstoppable force. Like I'm at a point where like I, the thing I would have to do to keep growing, I'm not going to do. Um, and I think that we all kind of run into that at some point. And, and that's more likely the limiter in how big somebody gets or how much muscle you gain genetics. Plus like just your, the trade-offs that would be involved in, in taking that next step. Like maybe I'd have to train a little bit more. Like we just, we're obviously we're talking about volume here, but like maybe I'd have to train a little bit more minutes per week and I'd have to, you know, buy into the next five years of gaining and cutting. And maybe I'd have to gain a little bit more aggressively and put on even more body fat. Maybe I'd have to trade off some of my social life to get better sleep and not drink alcohol or whatever. And it just, 
we come to some of these practical stopping points of like, I'm not going to do those things. Um, and so, yeah, I think g- genetic genetics certainly will cap us off at, I think, your scenario at roughly similar places. But I also think we all just individually get to a point where we're like, the things I'd have to do to keep growing, I just don't want to do anymore. And so whether I got like, that's the thing that's going to stop me from getting bigger, not whether or not I took like four, four to nine sets per week or like nine to 12 sets per week. Yeah, no, I mean, I resonate with all of that. I kind of wish there was like a way that I could know. Cause now that like Eric Trexler went and poked holes in DEXAs and like now DEXAs aren't even trustable. I feel like, I feel like there's like no way of knowing. And maybe like just the, the, the annual pictures that I do are like the best comparison that I have, but like my body weight's the exact same in all of them. So like, I'm kind of looking better year to year, but fuck, I don't know. Um, but like to answer your question specifically, like the thing I would have to change would be, it would be food. I would have to watch what I eat closer because I just, at this point I've I'm on autopilot where I can eat pretty much whatever I want within reason. And like nothing really crazy happens. Um, and so I just kind of settle in like the mid to high one nineties and I can literally have dessert like four times a week and eat pizza and cheese steaks if I want to, and life goes on, but I probably could get a lot more good nutrient in my body. If I was replacing that shit with like more quality food choices. Um, and then along the same lines, I would have to not go out with friends and like drink beers and watch the world cup. And like, I had a great time drinking three beers and watching the world cup the other day. And those aren't things that I really want to give up at this point either. So, um, shit, man, I'm 40. Like, I I don't, who knows how much progress I have left to make anyway, but for sure the juice is not worth the like serious squeeze, you know? Yeah. And I don't want to be uh, the it doesn't matter guys, you know, I don't want to be like, eh, none of this matters, you know, um, but I do want people to strongly consider that there are very likely other variables that matter more to where you will ultimately end up, the rate at which you will get there, uh, the enjoyment that you'll have along the way, then, you know, how many, then whether you did like three less sets per week, um, it's likely, you know, in, in the best case, I think in the most uh, encouraging case, it is a slightly faster route, let's say to do a little bit more volume, slightly faster route to the same place. And in the worst case scenario, um, maybe it's slight, you get to a slightly lower place than you would have and maybe slightly slower, but chances are you have to weigh the other side of that scale, which is like, why maybe I only had to do two thirds of the amount of time there. Um, And I just think that people should strongly consider that part of the equation too. What is the cost of this? Because the, the, the benefits probably are getting to the same place slightly faster. And if we look at the other variables, like this just is, I've never, have you ever looked at a program and thought, yeah, man, or like uh, it had a client. It's like, you're just, you're not seeing the results because you're, you're missing out on like two, two, four more sets of this muscle group per week. I've just never done that before. <laughs> Maybe I'm not doing something right, but chances are there's like way bigger opportunities for improvement in other places. Sleep, you're not in a surplus. You're not going close to failure. Your exercise selection sucks. Your execution sucks. Like it's like you super low on protein. You're like missing meals. You know, like you have crazy asymmetric calorie intake. Like there's just like, it's rarely the case that like we have this, this is something that we talk about so much is volume stuff. It's just like, if you're doing it in a pretty decent amount of volume, there's just other variables I'd look at. Yeah. I mean, if long, yeah, if you're doing enough volume, whatever enough is for you, wherever you are on that spectrum and you're working hard and using good execution and getting close to failure and all those things, then, then for sure, not, no progress is, Hey, you're stressed out. You're not sleeping enough. You're not getting enough protein. Um, it's, it's some sort of combination of, of lifestyle factors and probably not the specific program that you're on. 
Let's 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 pivot. Um, I don't know if we PS just just from like a me to you thing. I don't know if you listen to the latest uh, pod data driven strength guys, but they were looking at um, research like myo reps, like a rest pause technique um, versus straight sets. And uh, anyway, just like double down on the conclusion that like effective reps is not the holy grail. It is a decent heuristic, but um, it you probably need slightly more effective reps with shorter rest periods to equate just because performance will technically be lower. Um, but I still think when we talk about like ways to be more efficient, that's certainly going to be one of them. So let like, give me like a couple of them that come to mind for you. So what basically what we're talking about guys for you guys listening, it's like, okay, let's say you have, you have a client or a group or your yourself, uh, and you want to be more efficient with your time. What are some ways to like, let's say you need X stimulus to grow the muscle. What are some ways to get X stimulus or close to X in less time? Yeah. I think we've addressed a lot of them in that, you know, choosing more demanding length and movements, uh, using things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, using things that are like, uh, myo reps and rest pause sets on movements that are conducive to it. And then more so, uh, I think an easy, you know, kind of low hanging fruit is accentuating the length and position on movements that are inherently short overloaded, which we've discussed on pretty much every other podcast that we've done together. But, um, this idea of taking like a row, a leg extension or a leg curl and using some of your volume in that first 30 to 50% of the range of motion where the muscle is, is more lengthened. Um, and so with that in mind, one of the things that I haven't experimented with until this mesocycle in my training is actually doing sets where I'm purposely stopping the range of motion short of where I could actually get to. Um, so my example here, I'm doing it on, on two movements, I think, but the one that I'm mainly focused on is my like 45 degree hip extension, trying to make it more hamstring biased. And we know that the hamstrings are lengthened and they work primarily most in the bottom 50% of the range of motion. And then as we get toward the top and we cross gravity, we're going to get a lot more glutes working at that point. Um, so what I've been trying to do is bias that bottom position and figure out like what it it's, it's, it's been a weird trying to figure out what. 70% range of motion feels like versus what it looks like on camera. Um, and, and I'm still working through it cause I'm only in week two of my, of my mess right now, but, um, kind of a cool, unique way that, uh, that I'm looking forward to experimenting with to try to get more out of that length and position. Yeah, that's going to be a good experiment. I think that the, the world of the world of partials and length and partials is just emerging. Going to be super fun. The the a couple of things I, as we were talking, just notes I was making because I knew we were going to get to this sort of like listing out these things. It's like one is just getting closer to failure. Like if you're, it's pretty simple. Like the amount of sets you do is inversely correlated to how hard you should be going in some ways. Like so, if you're doing less sets than and you want to equate stimulus, you're going to have to go harder. You know, so like if you're doing four sets at three RIR, you would need and you can only do two sets. Like to try and equate stimulus the best you can, you need to go closer to failure. It's not yeah. mega complicated. So getting closer to failure, um, more exercises that challenge the length and position. Um, and I don't mean more like additionally, I mean, skewing the exercise selection more towards yeah things that are challenged in a length of position. I think more compound lifts, less isolation lifts is fair. If you're trying to, uh, you know, get in and get out and get more stimulus per minute. I think that that's a pretty obvious one that you more compound lifts. Um, that isn't, you know, compound is a tricky word, but let's, you know, let's just use it at face value for what we know it means. Like more, you know, uh, more bilateral work, more pressing, you know, less, maybe less direct arm work, maybe less knee flexion extension work, more, you know, squats and hinges, uh, that sort of stuff. I think, I think, um, 
Two that I had down here were higher stability setups. And so if you have an option to like, if you're really looking for like leg, like quad stimulus, maybe you opt for the hack instead of a back squat, you know, because that might be a way for like three sets equated that you can get a little bit better hypertrophy. I even put lower rep range in here from a time perspective. I think if we're looking at a set of 25s versus, I think uh, this big discussion of like what rep range should we work in? And then someone's like, oh, five to 30, you know, gives equivalent hypertrophy. I'm like, maybe it does. I'd have some issues with it a little bit, but um a set of 30 takes a fucking way longer time than a set of six. And if I can get it done in six, why am I doing 30? There, there yeah. are some discussions about that. I think even me and you have had this, those sorts of discussions, but one of them is like, if you do a set of six and a set of 16 and both of them feel really good and you know, you can get them, you know, your form is still really great with both of them. And stimulus wise, it's, you know, subjectively it checks out. It's going to take you less time to do the lower rep range. And frankly, uh, maybe some just, selfishness, uh, like my own anecdote, that is something I very much leaned into is like, if I can do a really good set of six, I'm going to do a really good set of six. Um, I think intensity techniques, like you talked about, it's like an opportunity to both save time and work closer to failure and beyond getting more stimulus in less time. So that's mile reps, drop sets, supersets technically as well. Um, all, all, all up for grabs. And then the argument of less rest is also one that is, you know, the reason less rest has to be on here is because myo reps just are a extrapolation of less rest. Mm-hmm. They are just like the extreme example. Um, and there's a little bit of research. I, I I saw some from Helms and some of the mass guys that like you could adapt a little bit to lower rest periods and end up, you know, you'd you, there's an argument. I would actually make the argument. I'm not in love with this one just because I think I, would rather either lean more heavily on straight sets and high performance or lean on the extreme of myo reps. And I think that the lower rest periods will, again, myo reps being an extrapolation of that really need to be leaned into like high stability, single joint movements. Um, but I guess you could do that. I mean, what is the, really the difference between doing three sets of bicep curls with a 45 second rest versus like one set with three myos that are taken 10 seconds after each other. It's, it's more probably or less the it's same more or less thing. the same. Yeah. As long as cardiovascular system isn't and synergous muscles and all that stuff isn't a limiter. It's just a, an extrapolation upon this lower rest yeah. thing. So, so those all seem like, um, <laughs> I was going to ask you which of those. So you guys are doing a physique 45. I, the program yeah. that I write has been utilizing this idea of like, I, I get, I don't want my people in there for too long. And I think both of our programs for the long time have had that as a, neither of our programs are maximalist programs. They're not bodybuilder programs. They're not like in there for as long as possible to get the best gains, but you guys are doubling down on that. You're doing a physique, physique 45. So of those variables if I can fly in the room of those variables, which are ones that you're like, like big doubling down on that. You're like, Oh, we're really flexing these. Like, what are you having fun with? Yeah, 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 for sure. Good question. Um, so I have two others to add to, to the list of what I already said, but I think working closer to failure is, is the number one, like on, on any program you have to work closer to failure. So whatever that progression model was that we talked about on the last episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just faster. Um, you start a rep closer to failure, you get to failure faster, that whole thing. Um, then of course we're using the mile reps and rest pause stuff. And, uh, we're choosing more length and demanding movements for the most part. Uh, we have eliminated calves and abs from the programming, which I know is something that you eliminate in your program too. So you're already kind of a step, uh, in that direction. Um, and then the two other ones that, that you kind of listed or 
alluded to was uh, one that we're doing is we're actually using a different rep scheme approach to a lot of the movements. So uh, an example being like a, an RDL where usually it would be two to three warm up sets and then two or three sets of six to 10 reps. So you're potentially at like at probably like five to six works, probably five to six total sets and you have rest in between each of them, et cetera. So we're just knocking a set or two off by using a descending rep scheme where it's going like 12, 10, eight, six, so that maybe that set of 12, you know, is just your warm up. You don't really get any effective reps from that. But once you get into the 10, eight, six, you're probably getting something from the 10, a little more from the eight. And then your six is, is your banger. Um, so we're doing that on a lot of compound movements. And then the other one you mentioned was supersets. And so I, man, the literature isn't like super friendly on same muscle group supersets. But I personally have always been a really big fan of them, especially when you go from short to lengthened. Um, and so I intend on using a lot of those. There's two in the current uh, Mesto where uh, one is is going from a, oh, wait, wait, what did I do on this one? You know what? This is actually a length. This, this, this is a. This is actually a length and lengthen. So right after a goblet I said squat, they're walking the, the walking yeah, lunge, like, goblet squat, lunges, yeah. lunges and goblet squats. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you do your lunges, you hit close to failure, and then you just grab one of the dumbbells and, and put your heels on some elevation and start squatting. So we got that one. And then we have a, um, I, man, I'm, I've write so many programs. It's hard to remember exactly what I program and what all the time, but I know I was leaning heavily toward doing a short lengthened uh, adult superset too, which I'm a huge fan of going from like a, a no loss of tension lateral raise with dumbbells into like a behind the back cable lateral raise. Um, or what we do is we sub out the cable lateral raise for people that have dumbbells by doing like the dumbbell x-rays where it's basically just like bottom range partials. Bottom half. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so those two for sure. Um, and then we're already like on the movements that are short overloaded, like back stuff, we're moving into partials in like week two, I think, or, or week three, if not week two, um, and just trying to get into that length and range and do the most in those situations too. So, uh, a lot of combinations of a lot of these different things and, and putting them together. And then I had mentioned on the last episode that I hadn't done reverse drop sets yet for the Paragon program. And so reverse drop sets are, are making their appearance into, uh, into the physique 45 as well, which I know you've used in your program. Yeah. I think the, the, there are a lot of fun things. And I use that word like truthfully, like fun ways to mix things up. But I do think that like generally the point is to get closer to failure. Um, on average, that's like what people can really lean into. It's like, I'm doing less sets. I'm spending less time. I'm going a little bit harder. I think that the way you go a little harder, there's like a lot of different ways that we can go about solving that problem. But I think if you can sink your teeth into, I know that it doesn't, it, you know, there'd be arguments here of like it not equating perfectly, but um, I believe that it either does equate perfectly or is still a very, something you should very much consider in terms of like that it's worth the, the time saving that you the time that you will save. Um, yeah. What are we, what are we doing in this mezzo right now? I think, I think I'm getting to the point where like, if it's short overloaded and it's high stability, uh, I might go partial rep match right out of the gate or a myo rep match right out of the gate and not do as many sets and then potentially see if there's room for additional sets later. I think we're doing a chest supported row right out of the gate, two sets, partial rep match. So it's like set one, zero RIR, full range of motion set two, whatever amount of partials you need to match the first set rep count. Um, which is like is that heavier or is it like a reverse drop set? Are you doing a full rest or full rest? Same thing. Yeah. But, but it's basically like in two sets, I'm getting 
one all out failure set and I'm getting one beyond failure set into the length and position. And so mm-hmm. for two straight sets, I'm getting a much bigger stimulus than like, hey, we're doing four sets, straight sets of like a four, three, two, one RIR. Um, it's like we can get it done in two sets, one of which is all the way to failure, full range of motion. The next one is, is into so- your partial rep matches are with the same weight, but you just assume that they're not going to get as many reps because Correct. there's fatigue from the first set. Correct. So they might only be like, it might be like 12 on the first set. And then the next set might be 10 plus two partials Correct. or something. Yeah, totally yeah. right. Yeah, I'm good with that. Um, you know, I've done three sets of partial rep match, which I like, but it, it that would have to be a single joint high stability. So like the chest supported row, I, I it's so funny this morning, I like, you ever do this? Like I woke up at like the middle of the night and I was like three sets of that is way too much. Like I literally woke up, I put, put a notepad <laughs> next to my bed. I was like, they're going to fucking die with three sets. Um, not they're going to fucking die, but like doing it right from the get go, uh, is like yeah. real tough. Um, and so you're right. It would be like 10 on the first set and then like eight full ones with like one rep then at 90% and then one rep at like 85%. Um, yeah. so if I'm doing something like, um, you know, maybe like a leg extension, I might do three sets partial rep match right out of the gate, like high stability, single joint, short overload, three set partial rep match. Like just, just, I, I it's going to hurt locally, but like, and, but you're going to be systemically just fine. Um, and just trying to find ways not to get to a minimalist of like, like, I love, I love what you guys did. It's been inspiring to watch you guys just be like, fuck it, man, we're going to have another program that's like going a little bit even further towards making this shorter time. Um, but that's something that if I, again, that's why I'm, I've chosen to speak about it. Cause like that just dealing with like regular people who want to get jacked, like this is exactly who that's for. It's not for like, it's for someone who wants to make gains, but somebody who doesn't have as much time. And I, and I don't know about you, but have you, um, yeah, I don't know. We've talked about this. I don't want to beat this to a dead horse, but I just find that it's the same for me to go to like a zero RAR on a chest supported row than like a two RAR. It's just, it's just the same to me or a zero RAR or like two reps into partials. Like it's just the same. Like, and frankly, uh, yeah, it's the same emotionally and systemic fatigue for me, but I noticed that especially on some of those rows, especially on a rear delt row that I'm finding that those lengthened partials are when I'm starting to like locally get some stimulus. I'm like, holy crap. I never have actually, I know sensation can be misleading and all that, but it's a clue nonetheless, um, where I felt that quite a bit. Yeah. Which makes sense. Obviously. I think sensation is much more reliable the the deeper you are into your training age. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was, uh, if you don't have anything else, I was going to ask the question of like, okay, guys, we hear you. Um, you know, I'm new to training. I get it. Maybe I don't need so much, but does volume need, do volume needs increase, increase like within an individual across the training age? Like does the more advanced I get, do I need more volume? Like what's that discussion kind of look like? Well, I think the first note there were our asterisk would be if you did the same amount of sets forever from the beginning to the end, your volume would go up just because you're doing more weight for more reps. Um, so in that sense, yes, your volume does have to go up. Um, however, I also think it would be reasonable that somebody starts at higher volumes and then as they get stronger volumes going up, they realize that they don't need as many sets volume comes down. Um, they get better at execution. They choose better exercises. Volume can come down a little bit again. Um, so I don't know if I necessarily like that statement of volume has to go up over a training age. Like I kind of think that it's laced with too many caveats to even use it as like a general model for people. Um, I, I more just think that as long as you're 
getting, continuing to, to get stronger, add weight, add reps over time in hypertrophy rep ranges, I think I'm much less tied to volume being a driver there. Um, I think volume is, there's going to be a certain amount of volume that's necessary for you to see progress. And there will be a certain amount of volume where it's too much and you won't see progress and you would be benefited by doing less. There's also probably a point where you do so little that you're not making progress. So volume is kind of like this dial, like this uh, sound dial that turns up the volume volume, turn down the volume, right? Hey, volume. Um, but, uh, but that's kind of more how I look at it. And it's always got to be in relation to like the amount of effort you're putting into the sets that you're doing too. So, um, there's so many different kind of variables that all converge in this discussion that I definitely don't feel comfortable saying volume has to go up over time. Yeah. I think that if we can all agree that as you train more, you get better at all aspects of training that by definition, as I get better, I might get more. That means getting more out of each unit of work, which means I would need less like sets and rep or, you know, whatever, let's say just less sets because you're getting better at all aspects of lifting proxim, you know, you're getting better at actually getting close to failure, knowing what that's like, not having technique breakdowns when you go to failure, you know, neurologically, neurological efficiency. And like you said, as you train longer, that's probably decently correlates with training smarter. That doesn't always correlate though, but you would expect like maybe your exercise selection improves over time. As you learn more higher stability exercises, you know, you're again, because you're more neurologically efficient, you're better able to take the muscle close to failure without having a technique breakdown. Um, I also think the stronger you are, it, like, I think it's important for people to understand like uh, strength and like how strong you are, how much actual weight you're lifting and how fatiguing something is, is not 100% relative. And so if I do my 5RM and you do your 5RM, it's not because it's both of our 5RMs and we both went to failure that we both are incurring the same amount of systemic fatigue. Like there, it does actually, it's nonlinear. And so the stronger you are, everything is more fatiguing for you just because you know, uh, you know, uh, big Ronnie is deadlifting 800 pounds for his one RM and little Johnny's his doing his 135 one RM. You're both not incurring the same amount of fatigue. Big Ronnie is dying inside. And yes, it's still your one RM, but it does not, it's not, doesn't scale one-to-one. And so as you get to stronger, everything is more fatiguing. And so you run out of, you know, uh, recoverable volume more quickly. Uh, maybe again, you could say that it maybe still is on an upward trend in some ways, but you run, you, you do run into more systemic fatigue, the stronger you get, just, it's just a fact. Yeah. You have to choose exercises that are going to give you more of that stimulus to fatigue ratio. So when you're really strong doing a back squat with 500 pounds for 10 reps is not the same as you doing 200 pounds to 10 reps to failure when you first started. Um, this kind of makes me think about something though, that like, so, so when we look at the research between training volumes needed for men and women, right, we see a general skew in the direction of women needing like slightly more. And then I assume that most of these minimalist studies were probably done, you know, with, with males as most studies are. Um, I don't think that the amount that women have to do more than men is like an astronomical number, right? Where it's like, they need double the amount of volume or something silly like that. Like it's probably something more along the lines of like 10 to 20% more, which when you're looking at these numbers, which is say someone's doing five sets a week of something, you're literally talking about, okay, if you're a girl, maybe a female, maybe you need six sets instead of five sets type thing. But I think a lot of people can get that misconception and run away with it and be like, oh, minimalist training won't work for me because I'm a woman and I need more volume type thing. 
Yeah, it's an important caveat, definitely. I think that there, I did a podcast like a long time ago. It was like differences between men or women. And there's like a lot of like cool differences that, and some of them it's like better capillary density, better certain other things that like make them better at recovering and they can handle more volume and thus might need more volume. And it's like all these things. And you're like, okay, well, what's your practical recommendation? You're like, I don't know, maybe, maybe an extra set, you know, like it doesn't end <laughs> up being something that's like super meaningful. It's fun to talk about. Um, and, and, and you know, we both run general groups. I'm sure we both do, you know, you do, I don't know what you're doing with one-on-one, but I'm, you've coached people one-on-one in the past, but there's like, uh, individually, there is a wide range of responses to this stuff. And so we're trying to get it the most right for most people. And I always feel like, you know, if you're ever in doubt of like, am I getting enough stimulus? Am I, am I doing enough? Like double down on the effort side of things, because it's, it's highly likely if you're in a half decent program, that's made by somebody who pays any attention at all to like what the general consensus is like, it's probably enough sets and it's probably the effort side of things that, you know, and I think things can always get better. You know, you can be on a program that could be better. That's for sure. But man, it's just really like, that's really where it comes down to. Like, like I always say like when in doubt, work hard, work hard. Um, like it hedges so many of these other variables, like proximity to failure really does kind of whatever. It hedges a lot of you getting some other things wrong. Uh, and of course we can work up from there, but that's like always strikes me as like, yeah, if you don't know if you're doing enough sets, work, work hard in those sets. And, and you're probably good because you don't need a lot of sets to get grow to get growth. And so if you just, you're like, well, I'm only doing two sets. All right. Well, you work fucking hard. I promise you, yeah. you're, you're going to be good to go. Yeah. The, um, the proxy or and maybe proxy is the wrong word, but like what I've noticed recently is I do two hard sets now of a movement and I get like this one set gets me like a little bit, like I can feel the muscle kind of cramping up and I'm like, Oh, I got something from that. Right. Then I do a second set and it's like, Whoa, that like really moved the needle. I can feel a tangible difference between one and two. And then I do a third set and more times than not, that third set either doesn't add anything to where I was prior or even kind of like moves it back in the other direction, just a teeny little bit. And so Um, This is something like, man, I've been training as long as I've been training. And these are just things that now I'm like really pinpointing and and focusing on. So I wonder, you know, maybe that's something that the listeners themselves can, can also think about as they're going through their sets, like kind of critically analyze how much stimulus you're getting from one set, from the second set, and then the third set and beyond, and um, kind of feel that, that sensation as we use the word to which may or may not mean anything, but um, I think it's somewhat relevant. So uh, you always hear that kind of RP thing of if you train so much that your pump goes away, then you've done too much. And so I don't, it's not like my pump went away from doing a third set, but it's like, I feel it less beneficial than I would expect it to um, in relation. And it is, it is less. I mean, we just went over this whole thing of like, there's a yeah. huge, there's an exponential drop off from set to set in terms of the benefit you get. I also crack up because if you guys don't follow Brian, obviously go follow Brian, but like, I will click through his stories and um, you were doing a, a clavicular cable press or something. And I, you had said something like, oh, two to three RIR or something or like two RIR or something. And I thought I caught you in the, I thought the video began in the middle of the set because I was just like watching the effort from the first set. And then I messaged you and I was like, dude, your two RIR is somebody else's like five reps beyond failure. And so there is, there is something to say that like, yeah, there's, there's specific context for you being uh, you, which is a savage number one, but also, 
uh, neurologically very efficient, getting a lot out of each rep, getting a lot out of each set, really being able to like lock in and take that set close to failure in the target muscle. And so again, first, you know, somebody else might feel what you just felt from like set four to five, and you might feel it from like set two to three. And yeah. it's definitely exercise dependent, but I, I, I laughed so hard because I thought I caught you. I thought it, the story began. Sometimes I'll do that where like, I don't need somebody to watch me in all 10 reps. So I'm like, all right, I'll just yeah. post the last six, but it was the whole set for you. It was like the first rep. I was like, he's probably got two more. And then it was like the entire set kept going. I was like, okay, I had to message you. I was like, you're, you're, you're two RRs. Like somebody else is like beyond failure. And so there is definitely some stuff on that. Um, I love playing that game when I watch other people's stories too, like guessing how many reps from failure they have. And it's, it's hard, man. It's, it's not easy because everyone is different as they approach failure. And obviously, you know, the type yep. of movement, the stability, the overload, all that sort of stuff. But, um, but yeah, the first rep that I did, as you pointed out is like, it's harder than the second rep sure. because you're starting from a dead stop. And then you have the stretch reflex piece on the, on the way down. So um, so yeah, I mean, that first rep was brutal, but then I kind of found a rhythm there and then still it was a, a really hard set of seven reps, I think. Yep. Agreed. What else is there to, what else is there to go into on this? Um, I'm curious, I'm curious, like there's a lot of people that will reference like old bodybuilders and people who have made amazing progress at this, like, you know, Dorian Yates, like, you know, people who are doing like this, like one hard set, you know, if you look at, I, 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 I've looked at some of Dorian's training, he did a lot of exercises. Like I'm not saying he, he didn't do low volume, but like, I looked at like one of the, like the Dorian Yates programs, there's like 10 exercises, like one set each or something. And I was like, there's still a fuck ton of stimulus here, but he definitely trained on the low end of volume. Um, and so that, there's definitely blood and, oh, sorry. If, if you watch blood and guts and you actually like watch him go through a training session, um, it's like, you know, one top set, but even his set before the top set, there's some effective reps in there, you know, like his top set might be four Oh five for, for six or something like that. And he's doing like three sixty five for four or three right before that. So, I mean, man, just, just, just lifting three sixty five is something, uh, it's a chest press. So yeah. Um, what do you think about like a people like trying to figure out what their optimal volume is? Like, I've always found that to be like a, people are like, oh, there's genetic, you know, individual differences between people. So you should find what works for you. Like, like, are, are people ever actually going to know tangibly, oh, I do better with low volume. And, and the, the reason I'm saying that is because I have an opinion on what works best for me. That's based almost, almost has nothing to do with the amount of gains that I make. It's based on way other personal preference and other constraints mm -hmm. that I have. Like, I feel like, the pursuit of trying to find what you respond best to is like, it's really hard to do. Even what you, what you just mentioned, like that even DEXAs now have been kind of outed as like, all right, it's not bad. It's, you know, but it's not the most amazing way to assess muscle growth. Like it's something that happens so slowly. It's something that happens like even on low volume. So it's not like, it's not good. It's not like you didn't grow for six months and you grow. It's like, maybe you grew 20% better. Are you going to notice that? And like, does it kind of lead you to this? Like, Hey, like let's, get it in the ballpark of correct on all these variables and then look at your like lifestyle constraints and make it work for that. Or are you like ever talking people through like trying to figure out what they do best with? It's a good question. I have a few thoughts on it. Um, I wonder if most people would probably be best off pushing to a slightly overreached state at some point in their training journey so that they know like where that ledge is. Um, and then they can back off from that ledge. And so one of the really cool aspects of the model in which you increase effort and volume potentially week to week, the RP model or whatever, is that it usually gets you to that precipice. And then you're like, whoa, 
that was gnarly. Um, but, but when you get there, then you realize what this fatigue feels like. And so if you hit that point again in the future, or you can feel it coming kind of, um, it definitely requires like a really high level of awareness in that, like you're somebody that, you know, is aware of how your sleep is affected, how your mood is affected, how your appetite is affected, how your daily energy is affected. Um, but for me, when it comes to assessing maximum or yeah, I guess maximum volume tolerance, um, I kind of base it less on like where I progress best because there's such ambiguity between strength and hypertrophy anyways. And I kind of like the idea of getting to that cliff edge and then backing it off a bit. Um, and I think that that kind of gives you a decent idea of where you're at, but it's like a really difficult thing to assess anyway, because of that confluence between maybe that's the wrong word, but between effort and volume. So like, man, you, you, you said earlier that like 10 to 20 sets sounds like a lot, but it doesn't really sound like a lot to me if I'm doing like three to five RIR on my sets. Like I kind of feel like I could just go in and more or less go through the motions. Not I feel like it's a lot of sets. time. It's a lot of time yeah, is what it feels yeah, like. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's obviously like a balance somewhere in there where it's like six sets of absolute failure is the same as 15 sure. sets with four right. RIR or something along those lines. And so this whole, what is maximum recoverable volume for me or max adaptive volume? Like where's the sweet spot of volume? It's a, a moving target based on lifestyle factors and B it's a combination of your effort in the volume that you're doing. Um, and so that's why I don't know that there is a right number. There's kind of like the, Hey, pushing myself to the ledge, stepping back from the ledge and hanging out there. And that's kind of what I've done. Like as I've reduced my volumes over the last couple of years, I've done so in the notion of, Hey, I reached that ledge. I felt like shit. I needed to deload. And now I kind of know more where that sweet spot is for me. Yeah. I, I feel like, uh, I feel like we really like need to look at a combination between time constraint and like, I don't even look at, like, I agree with you that, that those experiences actually have been good for me because they've, they've at least shown me that there's a limit. Um, I've had periods of like serious for me, it's totally sleep disruption. I'll get like, I, I, I for, I used to train with uh revive stronger with Steve Hall and his, his team. And I recall like every single time in my peak week, like Every single night I was waking up middle of the night and it was just like good for me to experience that because it's a similar RP model. And for me, I realized that 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 ascension in volume by adding sets and by getting closer to failure was exponential for me in that final week. And so I was like, basically what they are doing is like they're they're adding sets, um, but you're also going closer to failure. So in week, week four, it might have been three sets at one RIR. And then in week four, it's not four sets at one RIR, it's four sets at zero RIR. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it, it was an increase in effort and an additional set. And that exponential increase was leaving me trashed. And so just to experience that endpoint felt really good. Um, but I've been left with this, like this feeling of like most people I run into have either a time constraint or a personal preference or both. And so I think training, if you're a total minimalist, that means, so a minimalist in terms of time is a maximalist in terms of effort. You know what I mean? Like if you're trading away as little, if you're trying to use as little time as possible, you are training fucking hard. And that might not be your personal preference. You might not want to do 30 minutes of like Dorian Yates style, like veins popping out of your head near death experience. 
And so I think that there's a combination of, all right, what's my time constraint? And what's also my like personal preference appetite in terms of like, um, you know, how, how often can I really take a set to the limit and, and enjoy that? And also like emotionally get up for that. I think that the, the data driven strength guys were talking about some research of like, um, how individual it is, how we drop off performance wise from hard sets where like some people will go like a set of 10 to failure, then a set of eight to failure and a set of six to failure. And some people will go like a set of 10 to failure and then a set of two. And then the next set, they can't even do one. They have to take 10% of the load off or something like that. And so they were, they were like doubling down on that. Like that, that is something in the research we see like crazy. And so that is also like, yeah, that is something that I've experienced. Like, do I like, like you, you, I've watched you and I'm like, Hmm, I like, I I'm trying to see if I feel the same way on my third set of stuff. I'm like, do I feel a big drop off? Do I feel like I'm getting something out of it? Does it feel worth it to me? Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that if I like the less sets you do, the harder each need to be. And that there's also an emotional cost to that, like needing to like each set to be balls out hundred percent to failure, like to be on failure. Like, is that also my best, my most, you know, favorite preference of training. So that's like, I'm usually looking at someone's time constraint and like their natural proclivity to like be able to, to take themselves to that place. It doesn't need to be emotional, uh, the failure point, you know, but like just being able to, again, exercise dependent and training age dependent, of course. Yeah. I need to listen to the data driven podcast. I haven't downloaded it and, and haven't gotten to it yet, but, um, I'll say that I have successfully gotten myself to that ledge without increasing volume really just by increasing effort, you know, week to week, because that, that, what that kind of tells me is that I found more or less what my sweet spot is for volume, because I can gradually build into it. I have a few like really good training weeks and then it reaches a point at week six to eight somewhere where I'm like, whoa, fucking get me that deload because psychologically I'm, I'm really burnt out right now. And so that kind of tells me that I've gotten it right. Um, so the only volume that gets added, I think similar to what you do, but I won't have rest pause sets or I won't have partials and then I will have a rest pause set or I will have partials. So there is like certainly a little bit of volume increase there, but it's not like going from two sets to six sets across a meso. It's like going from two to two and some partials or two in a rest pause set. Yeah. So the, to close it down, the last thing we were going to discuss was just like possible limitations to a minimalist approach. And I, I as I like wrote that out, it sounded like a good topic, but to me, it, it just comes down to like a genetic difference, like a misapplication for like someone who's just like a high, needs a lot of volume. And I put that in air quotes. Cause like, again, we just talked about how like maybe you're not really even sure or, or the pursuit of finding that out might not even be super necessary, but yes. Okay. If you're like someone who doesn't respond well to low volumes, which is because this is a bell curve that is not the majority. Um, or if your effort, if the effort just isn't there, if, like that's why I, do, I don't know about you, but like when I, when I, when you program physique 45, do you like sometimes lose sleep in the, in the thought of like, people are like going to do this program, not get much out of it because they're not going close enough to failure to get the most out of that time. I mean, we have the two different avatars, man. Like we, 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 there, there's the person that's going to work too hard and ignore the RIRs anyway. And then there's the person that's not going to work hard enough. And so I, I really try not to lose sleep over that just because I know that no matter what I do, there's going to be someone that fucks it up and someone that gets it right. Um, so, so yeah, no, I don't, I don't lose sleep over that. Well, I'm they, sure you articulate it in the, in the group. You're articulating yeah. the importance of doing so, you know, yeah. doubling I down mean, every, on every, Every movement that's programmed has an RIR target designation next to it. And sometimes an explanation of like, we've talked about if it's a two, one, zero, it's like, Hey, you may get the same number of reps on each one of these sets because can you hear me? This thing just went in and out. Um, yep. 
I hear you fine. Okay, cool, cool. Um, so yeah, I wrote down a few of these potential holes and we've kind of addressed most of them already, but effort was the first one, yep. uh, execution and exercise selection. We covered that, yep. um, individually specific higher volume needs. We covered that, uh, strength MEV versus hypertrophy MEV. We discussed that, um, training frequency concerns. We didn't really address this, but like you could design a minimalist training program that hits four sets a week for each muscle group, but it could be done one time a week. And, and I would have to say that that's probably a whole, like, I don't, I don't think that you doing your full body one time a week is going to be as productive as you splitting that up across three days. Um, and then, uh, that's, that's actually the five things that I had written down. So that, that last point about like it, it potentially be like the, like the frequency being a consideration is the discussion of this data driven strength podcast. Like what is the, what is the, like a frequency, the point of frequency is to improve performance. Like that's basically to accrue more, more volume or improve performance. And so I agree with you there that like, you could say, oh my God, I could do four sets per muscle group a week. I could just do that all in one day. But if you take into account how hard you'd have to train doing that all in one session over the course of that session from set to set, you'd get more tired performance would drop off to a degree. And I, which I think would be meaningful. Definitely. I don't know if that means you can do it in two days. uh, But I do think that like, that is a concern of like, yeah. You know, when, when people in my group are like, Oh, I'll just, I missed today. I'll just double up on, you know, I'll do day three and day four. It's like not to go too deep into that hypothetical, but like, just to be clear, that's not the same because there is yeah. uh, a performance drop off that will end up being meaningful for the, for the stimulus side of things, the adaptation side of things. And so, yeah, I'm with you on that. It, it isn't, you know, when we talk about maintenance though, we could, we could get into that discussion of yeah. like, could you do it in once per week? But um, yeah, I think for growth, I think that hitting those set numbers with the context of needing to train super fucking hard because you're limiting number of sets probably wouldn't work within just one session. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. No, I agree, man. Have you had to double up in your experiment that you're doing? Have you had to have a day yet where you doubled up? Yeah. Son of a bitch. I, I did a hike yesterday with my dog and it was a uh, it's funny because I, I, I'll always like look at, up at the hike and, and usually, you know, she, I give her like a cap of time. She's a little dog. Um, but this hike, I just like, I missed the exit for the hike that I was supposed to go to. So I like pulled off on the road and I saw that there was like another trail up ahead. And I was like, oh, let me just, sometimes I just want to hop on the trail and we go out like an hour and a half, two hours and an hour and a half back. Um, and so I was like, all right, let me try this one. It was like notably hard. That's Texas hard. Even a hard hike here is like a all trails easy or something, yeah, but it was yeah. a little bit harder, just hard enough and just long enough and exciting enough where like, I wanted to do more of it that I got home and I just had zero motivation to train. So I did not double up on a day, but now I am now I will have to, or uh, sorry, I did not do the workout on that day. So right, now this right. week I am posed with the question of, do I want to double up? Well, as per the experiment, I have to double up and I will yeah. double up um, my my easy arm day with one of the leg days, which that was what I had to do with the easy arm day. And, I, and even that one, I had no motivation Didn't to, to do. do. Yeah. yeah. And that, yeah. that's what you said. Yeah. 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 We were, we were WhatsApping about that, but uh, you know, because I was arguing how much I love my rest days. And then I've actually kind of experimented in the other direction where now I've begun splitting my leg days into two, even though that's not part of my program, I take my hamstring work and I do it. Then the next day I come back and do my quad work. But what that means is that instead of training two on one off, two on one off, which, which I love, I now have periods where I have to do four in a row and then a day off and then four in a row and a day off type thing. Um, and I don't love that but I do love only having to work out for like 20 to 30 minutes, um, for, for my legs and, and, and feel like it's just, man, when you're working the hamstrings and the quads, there's just, 
it's the whole reason you can't do one time a week and expect a minimalistic approach is like the same idea. You, you finish hamstring work and you're mentally taxed, you're physically taxed. You don't want to go put the energy into the quads, but if you get food, you sleep the night and come back, it's a much more reasonable proposition. Yep. You got, you have a, you have a, I'll, we'll let you off the hook after this. I'm curious how the arm experiment is going. That's all just like you have one jacked arm or you look exactly the same. I mean, I, it sounds weird. Not, not, th- not that what you're doing is weird. I'm saying, I bet it feels really weird. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I don't know anything yet. I actually have been going around telling everybody on podcasts that I'm about three months into my experiment. And then I went back and looked at my Instagram post yesterday and I'm not even two months in yet. <laughs> so, uh, I, I have clearly, um, uh, mis remembered things in my brain or it just feels like longer because yep. I have buys on, on pull day and tries on push day. So it just feels like I'm fucking always doing arms and I'm always doing one arm. Um, so, so I don't know how the experiment's going yet. My plan is to measure at the three month mark and see anything. Uh, but I will, I will say that my left arm feels like it's increasing coordination. Like I always, I mentioned last podcast that whenever I would do uh, two arm movements, tricep or bicep, I would always feel like my left arm would need like a little, come on, buddy on the last rep. Whereas the right arm would have no problem, you know, finishing it out. So it's maybe like a one RIR difference. Um, and it feels at least like my left arm is increasing coordination. I don't know how that is going to correlate to anything down the line, but it feels less awkward now. Um, so I think that's at least a positive sign. For those of you guys who don't know, Brian's only training one of his arms for six months just to see if, um, just to see if there, if the direct arm training means, uh, makes any meaningful difference in comparison to like how much his other arm is getting hit by just compound lifts. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And then I think that this actually feeds really well into the whole minimalist discussion because at the end of the six months, um, we've talked about kind of the two different outcomes that could occur or three, I guess there's really three outcomes, but my hypothesis being that my right arm won't grow, won't shrink and my left arm won't grow. Um, and if that's the case and my hypothesis is right, then I pretty much could probably just eliminate direct arm work going forward. Yeah. That's like, um, those are the, it's funny that like my, I'm, I talked about this recently on a podcast. Like my part of the joy with my training has been these experiments just because I'm not as much in the pursuit of like optimizing gains. I'm now looking for some of these like intellectual, like trying to learn from my training, but it's just funny that like a lot of the experiments I want to do are like, can I do less? Can I do less? Not because I don't enjoy training, but I think it's, uh, it's a bit more like universally applicable. There's like, it's like a very, like, in, it's very, it's very inclusive. It makes fitness more inclusive when you lower the bar to some degree. Um, and yeah, whatever, just maybe, maybe I am like getting, turning into a phase in my life where like, I want to have time for other things and stuff like that. So it's funny that we're both leaning into like, could I, could I do less? Yeah. I've, um, just in the last few months, I think I've become a bit nihilistic about my own training. So it's something that, uh, Probably Dave, Dave McConey would argue. I probably should have been nihilistic about it 10 years ago, but, um, but it's just happened recently. And so, uh, I feel fortunate that I had 25 years of really believing in my progress. And I guess at the end of this arm experiment, we'll, uh, determine whether my nihilism was, uh, was rationalized or not. Yeah. All right, man, I'll get you out of here. It's been a fun podcast. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find you? I'll drop some links and we'll get you out of here. Yeah, man. Uh, Paragon Training Methods, uh, Evolved Training Systems. Those are my two companies, uh, podcast, Eat, Train, Prosper, and uh, my own training program. Uh, now that I've 
said how nihilistic I am and that it, nothing works. Uh, my own training program is offered as well. If you guys want to follow along with what I'm doing, um, that's on the app as well. So uh, yeah, come hang out. Cool. Thanks for having you. Uh, thanks for having you. That's weird. Thanks for coming on today. And uh, we'll catch you in, I'm sure, a month or so. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.